Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. For business and investing news, this is the Biz 1440. KYCR Golden Valley, Minneapolis, St. Paul. With SRN News, I'm Bob Agnew in Washington. Rescuers continue to search for survivors in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian in Florida this week. Fort Myers resident Anthony Rivera described trying to rescue a family around a large boat. To see a boat literally right next to my apartment as I'm trying to pull my grandmother and my girlfriend out, that's the scariest thing in the world because I can't stop no boat. Meanwhile, authorities in South Carolina are awaiting daylight to assess the damage from the storm's second strike yesterday, and it is feared that the death toll may go higher. Retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Tabridis says in the event Russia uses a nuclear weapon, the U.S. and its allies will respond. Certainly all of our forces would go on the highest stage of alert. You have to remember NATO, of course, is not just the United States. It's a nuclear alliance. Stabridis was interviewed by the Salem Radio Network, and this is SRN News. I'm driving a 2018 Elantra, red, my favorite color. Hi, I'm Rita from St. Paul. Well, when I first walked in, I felt welcomed. And I'd been at a couple other dealerships that uh, I gave an F to. And Justin was the first gentleman to wait on me when I took it in for my first service. And he's been the only person that I've dealt with since then. Can't say enough good things about him. On Christmas Day of last year, I was on the freeway driving home. And all of a sudden, a red light came on. And the right front tire was low. And the next day, I called. And Justin answered. He said, let me take a look at it and go in the waiting room and, and I'll get back to you. They found that there was a huge nail in the tire. And so he was able to get that all fixed up and replaced and sent me on my way home. Invergrove Hyundai was very welcoming. Service was excellent. Invergrove Hyundai's service technicians are ready for you no matter what kind of vehicle you drive. Open 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. weekdays. Call them today or schedule your appointment at InvergroveHyundai.com. Education is absolutely the most critical decision you can make for your children. To get half off, it's a no-brainer. Hi, I'm Jeff. Hi, I'm Trish, his better half, and we're from Oakdale. We wanted a strong Christian school with conservative values. The half-off tuition program was better than we could have ever imagined for our family. I asked the station several times to make sure that I understood that there weren't strings attached, and, and there were no strings attached. The impact on our kids has been amazing. Their critical thinking is stronger, and they're better equipped for life. Yeah, the power of the Christian education is that our children can make their decisions and their sound decisions, and it just makes them better adults. Send your child to a private school for half the cost for their first year. No strings attached. For details and participating schools, visit TwinCitiesTuitions.com. That's TwinCitiesTuitions.com. Portions of this program may have been pre-recorded. The views expressed on the following program do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. No! Come on, rise and shine. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? It's going to be a great year. Turn all the lights on and kill the noise. 
The Biz 1440 presents the best two hours of economic news and commentary. Is it safe? It's the King Banyan Show. This is a man. Your source for penetrating economic insight, razor-sharp analysis, and unflinching universal thought. My mind is aglow with whirling, transient nodes of thought. Everything you need to maintain clarity and stay ahead of the economic curve. Now, here's Professor King Banyan. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. Uh, thank you for listening today. It is my absolute pleasure, uh, as always, to uh, welcome back to the airwaves uh, uh, economists at Center of American Experiment, and I, I'm going to say my friend, because I do think we're friends, uh, John Phelan. Uh, uh, and uh, J- John, good morning and welcome, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to be here. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And and you're an economist, and you're a guy with that accent. So I can't help after that that my last segment <laughs> to think that you might have something to say about about what's happening in the UK. Um, is this is is, is this uh, ineptitude by that government, or do you like I? And I'm going to put myself right up front and say. I'm not sure it's so much ineptitude, but some bold, different kind of strategy to reclaim uh, to reclaim some lost ground among the Tory party. I was not a big fan of the Johnson government. I know, but I, I don't know about you, actually. So, so I'm just out there, and I'll just ask, what do you think? Well, it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, if you if you think back uh, to 08, 09, the financial crash. Um, British labour productivity and incomes, in, income growth has basically gone nowhere since then. Um, we had this very uh, solid trend line over decades that bobbed up at this kind of, you know, same old rate, um, which was always below European rates, by the way. Um, but uh, since 2007, um, these numbers have gone nowhere in Britain. So there's something that needs doing. Um, we cannot just keep on doing the same old thing. And over the past, um, so this is 15 years now, um, British kind of macro policy has been, uh, and this is a, a period when the, the British, uh, British government has been mostly conservative, um, has really been underpinned by low interest rates and increasingly uh, by high levels of government spending. Um, Boris Johnson uh, once wrote that he was a bit of a libertarian, um, when he was a journalist, um, as, a, as a prime minister, he did not govern that way. And his, his chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, um, did actually end up foisting Britain with the highest tax burden um, since the 1970s. Um, you know, so it was kind of turning the clock way back uh, to pre-Thatcher days. And um, to some extent, you know, uh, Truss and Kwarteng have gone back the other way, and they've tried to take uh, uh, macro policy or certainly fiscal policy in a much more Thatcherite direction. They realize that you can't just keep juicing the demand side uh, with low interest rates and more government spending. There actually does need to be some supply-side measures. Um, and that's what they've done. The politics of this, um, if you look at the actual measures, you know, um, one of them is not increasing the beer tax. One of them is not increasing the corporation tax. Um, you know, those aren't tax cuts. They're just not tax hikes is a difference. Um, another one is that they're going to abolish stamp duty, which is a tax on house transactions. Well, they had a stamp duty holiday over the course of the uh, COVID pandemic, and it actually paid for itself because 
uh, when you tax transactions with fewer transactions, you you cut that tax, more transactions take place, um, and you get more revenue. You know, re- the revenue is not purely a function of the rates. Uh, the controversial one is this cut of the, fo- of the top rate of income tax from 45% to 40%. But again, I, I see people saying that this is just kind of libertarianism gone wild. Which I, I don't know too many libertarians who, whose aim is a 40% top rate of income tax. Um, and it's also, it's also exactly the same top rate of income tax that prevailed uh, up until about 2008. Right, right. And, 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 so, and so, John, I, I, think, I think this is the point to make. I, I think the points you're making are strong. The, that, uh, in fact, what this does in some sense is simply take some of the Johnson policies and put them back on the shelf, right? Or, or take some of the other ones, like the, like a, the holiday on, du- on, on, the, on the stamp duty and, and continue it uh, out further. I don't see, I, I, but your, your, your base point, right? I don't know any time in which we've thought a 40% top rate in the United States. We haven't had 40% top rate in the United States. We didn't have it under uh, Reagan. Uh, we actually didn't even have it under Clinton. It is only most recently that it got crawled back up uh, when you add on uh, on uh, Social Security, Medicare taxation, that it creeps up a little bit above 40, but 45, no. Uh, so why is he, why are Truss and Quartan getting so much criticism from places that I think should keep their mouths shut, like the Europe, Europeans, but also even from the United States, not just the, uh, the not just uh, Summers and 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 um, and Krugman, but even from uh, a Fed official. Well, Kwarteng in his speech uh, said very explicitly, "We're not going to spend you know too much time arguing about distribution and arguing about inequality. We're going to look at growth." So, what he, it's really a, a very definite shift in stance. Um, and I think that's what annoys a lot of people, because the last you know, few years, we've been more obsessed with dividing up the economic pie and trying to think of ways to actually grow it. And I think that's to some extent. I mean, the, 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 the numbers I mentioned about productivity and income per, uh, incomes um, since 2007, they're particularly bad in Britain, but they're not great anywhere else. Right. Right. No, I think that's I, and I think that's right. And I think that's the. Uh... I think that's the, the, the key point here uh, in that uh, that uh, if you want to stimulate the growth of the economy, you have to do something to get productivity up. And and honestly, there's zero discussion with the United States. I don't hear much in the way of discussion in Europe. And to actually to actually hear somebody in a position in a governmental position and with the ability to address it, say we're going to address the productivity of our economy is really kind of refreshing in some sense yeah uh, uh so i i mean i mean i think i so i said one cheer you know in the pre in the segment before he came on john i think i might have to increase it to two yeah one thing i would say i mean obviously there was a kind of adverse market reaction um during the or, or to the mini budget um and primarily this took the form of sterling tanking um, but one thing, but there's two points to make about that. Firstly, sterling's been tanking all year. Um, it was about yep. one. It was like one one pound one one dollar thirty five at the start of the year. My wife still works for a British company, so we we felt this. She's paid in sterling, by the way. Um, and it was about one one twelve, I think, on the eve of the speech. It's back up to that now. So all yes. this. You know, 
Sterling crisis that there was after this speech has gone away. Um, and like I say, Sterling has been falling all year, um, which is another subject. Um, and then also another thing, another way that this manifest was in uh, bond yield spiking. Um, bond yields uh, spiked just after this, but the spike has gone down. The, but it's only the rate of increase that's gone down. We're back on trend for the rate of increase for bond yields to where they were before. But again, bond yields have been rising since August. Um, there are there are problems in the British uh, economy that are uh, that are deep. Um, you know, we we we've, we've got the same problems with the inflation that they have in the U.S. Um, and we're having to raise interest rates to fight that. That's pushing up borrowing costs. Um, Britain's in, in a particularly difficult situation. An awful lot of its debt is index-linked. Um, so it's not like you can right. just inflate away, you know. Um, and so, so Britain's in a, in, a, in a really dicey position. Um, and so that is really what accounts for a lot of these, you know, these soft indicators in terms of the exchange rate and bond yields. But it should be pointed out that these are, these are only more acute versions of problems other people have got. The Europeans um, have these issues as well. Holland, for example, just announced a 17% inflation rate yesterday, which is incredible. Yes. Um, and also, if you, look at, if you look at the European Central Bank, the only buyer for Italian and Spanish government debt anymore is the European Central Bank. Nobody else buys it. Um, and if they start to tighten, which they're going to have to do, that's going to become a problem. Yeah. Hey, John, one more question on this, and we're going to get to your paper. We're visiting with John Phelan from the Center of American Experiment. He's not just an economist that studies uh, the state of Minnesota. He's got a he's got a full world view here, and we're glad to have him with us. John, the last point being uh, being, can you maybe in two to three minutes explain the impact of this on the pensions in the UK? There are stories around. I'm reading. I got in front of me a Washington Post explainer uh, about about what happened in terms of them. Is this a case where perhaps some of the pensions just got caught with a one-way bet that went bad on them, or or what happened there? Uh, I'm 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 not so up to up, up to speed on this, but what what I as I understand it, these pension funds are expected to hold um, some British government debt, or they have been holding British government debt, um, and as the value of that has declined because the yields have been rising, and as you know, the yields and the prices of bonds kind of move in the opposite directions. Um, as the prices of these bonds and the value of value has gone down, um, they've had to dish up uh, or dig up liquidity from somewhere else, and that's where the Bank of England has stepped in. Um, so it's and you've seen what they're doing. I mean, this this program I think ends in two weeks, and so what they're doing now is they're unwinding these positions um, to try and get cash, um, which is kind of a sensible thing for them to be doing. Um, given the situation that they're in. But like I say, you know, the, the decline in British bond prices and the increase in British bond yields is not a, a, a result of the, um, uh, the mini-budget. It's been happening since August. And it's been happening because the Bank of England has taken a relatively dovish stance on inflation. So um, while the Federal Reserve has been hiking by like 75 basis points, the Bank of England mm-hmm. has generally been doing it by 25. They had one hike of 50. And what's interesting is the day before the mini-budget was announced, uh, the Bank of England was expected to raise rates by 75 basis points and then actually came out with a surprise raise of just 50, um, signalling again that they were a lot more you know, tolerant of inflation than other central banks are. And I think that explains some aspects of the market panic that you saw on the Thursday and the Friday. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. And so... so um 
the, the so the point here I, in in the uh, explainer from the Washington Post, uh, one of the companies that's been caught doing this type, it's called liability uh, driven investment, and how um, and and how it's causing uh, some of that. I'll I'll tweet it to everybody at the break, but. Uh, just to point out, uh, one of the companies involved in this is BlackRock. Um, who, <laughs> whatever, it's. I'm sorry. It just seems like whenever we we see one of these issues up, crop up around the world, it, you know, it's it's like I'll bet BlackRock's into it, and sure enough, yeah. uh, <laughs> sure enough. All right, we're visiting with John Phelan from the Center America Experiment. We're going to get to the main topic next uh, of what we came to talk about, which is the impact of COVID. Uh, uh, policies and uh, COVID uh, fighting policies across the 50 states. And what did it cost you uh, to, to do that? We'll, we'll have that conversation right after this. You're listening to The King Banyan Show on The Biz 1440. Soaking up the sun in Fiji, walking through the Sculpture Garden in Minneapolis, or standing in awe at the Grand Canyon. We're where you are. Listen to The Biz 1440 at odyssey.com or with the free Odyssey app. Over 50,000 police officers are assaulted on the job each year, leading to injuries and death. This is the reality they deal with when making contact with the public. Another reality is that if someone doesn't comply with a lawful order or uses force against them, police may have to use sufficient force in response to obtain compliance. Use of force is always ugly. Nobody likes it, especially police. And nobody knows how it will turn out. Spread the word. For de-escalation to work, both parties must de-escalate. And de-escalation isn't necessary if there is no escalation. Help police by not escalating. Don't attack or try to disarm an officer. Whether it's getting asked a question, getting a citation, or getting arrested, don't argue, don't resist, don't flee. After the encounter has been resolved is the time to address any complaints. Comply now, complain later. Keep everybody safe. This message brought to you by the National Police Association. To learn more about how to help law enforcement accomplish its goals, visit nationalpolice.org. We noticed we had a leak in our roof. Hey, I'm Brenda from Stillwater, Minnesota. We noticed some water staining in our ceiling by our chimney. This is our first time working with JTR Roofing. A close friend had recommended them and had a great experience. They ended up replacing our roof and performed the work on our chimney. I would recommend JTR Roofing because they were reliable, friendly, there were no hidden costs in their quotes, and the craftsmanship was outstanding. Not only did they do an outstanding job on our home, but also they support the community. They've had a good reputation in the 30 years that they've been in business, and just overall it was just a wonderful experience working with the company. I was absolutely satisfied with the work. Absolutely. We're thinking about having our windows replaced and we will be calling JTR. Go to JTRRoofingInc.com. That's JTRRoofingInc.com. For the life of your home, visit ThinkAMI.com. Some fall reminders from AMI. 
Turn off your outdoor spigot to avoid frozen water lines. A furnace tune-up will ensure you stay cozy all winter. Get priority scheduling and save with AMI's Total Solutions membership as low as $9.99 a month. An electrical safety checkup will ensure all smoke and carbon monoxide detectors are working. Air Mechanical leads the metro area in HVAC, plumbing, and electrical. Go to thinkami.com. Listen to the King Banyan Show Saturday mornings at 9 here on the Biz 1440. It's the latest economic news, trade information, your monthly jobs report, and much more. Join us this Saturday morning live on the Biz 1440. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. Visiting this hour with John Phelan from the Senate of the American Experiment, uh, co author uh, with, and I'm going to butcher her name, Martha Njimole. How do I pronounce her name? Njimole. Njimole? Okay, great. Uh, I came, I think I'm going to give myself a B minus for the, my pronunciation. <laughs> uh, it was, wasn't great. Martha, I. Thank you, thank you for your patience with uh, us Americans trying to pronounce names. Uh, we're, we're notably bad at it. Uh, but uh, your paper, uh, your paper with Martha is uh, titled "The Costs of Lockdowns and Shutdowns: Counting the Economic Costs of Government Policy Responses to COVID-19." I've just put up on Twitter again another link to that. So if you are listening to us live, you can certainly go to the top of my feed at Banyan Show. Or you can just go to the Center of American Experiment at AmericanExperiment.org. You'll see the report down the page a little bit. Just go down and look at the reports. It's the most recent one. And give that, and give that a look. John, um, everyone thinks that they know what the costs are. Everyone thinks they know what the benefits are. There's a wide range of opinion. And everyone thinks that everyone else is just completely wrong in whatever it is they think. What I loved about your paper paper with Martha is that I think you guys are a little more modest in terms of trying to figure out costs and benefits and not just glossing over one side or the other. But you do try to get a pretty solid grip on those economic costs. Uh, and, they're, and they're not the only ones, right? We'll talk about that maybe a little bit uh, in the next segment. But, but just in terms of economic costs... What was what was it that you were able to find about the cost of uh, the cost of uh, shutdowns here in Minnesota? Uh, well, the, the kind of primary finding um, of our report is that uh, government policy responses, and I can talk a little bit more about how we quantified those. Um, the government policy responses to COVID nineteen cost each resident of the state um, about nineteen hundred dollars in lost GDP by the end of the first quarter of twenty twenty one. Um, or about $7,500 for a family of four. And that was the 15th biggest hit in the United States. Um, so that's over the course of the first year of the pandemic. Um, now, we, we were only able, we were able to uh, look at that period only um, because the measure that we used um, to quantify the government responses, which is something produced by um, a school at Oxford University, um, only unfortunately runs up to that period. It doesn't run on beyond that. Um, but I think that covers the period for most places of the most severe restrictions. So I think we do get a fairly good handle on that. Good. And and so, so 
when you did this work, but you did a number of things. First, you simply tried to look at the ways in which you were measuring COVID impact, right? And yeah, there's a broad variety of different. There's a broad variety of COVID uh, policies that were out there. How was it that you tried to grip on maybe trying to find a way to describe those COVID policies? Well. One of the things that I, I like to try and do with uh, work like this is to, to rely on other people for, for some of the things. So um, we were quite fortunate that uh, there is this COVID stringency index uh, that was produced by, and I can't pronounce it, by the way, um, the Blackdenick, I think, School of Oxford University. This has been quite widely reported, quite widely, widely used. Um, and what they did is they constructed, uh, not just for the U.S. and the States, by the way, they did this for a whole bunch of jurisdictions. Um, but they constructed an index uh, so that as the number went higher, um, it meant that, you were, that your uh, authorities were imposing more stringent restrictions. Um, so there is actually a chart in the report. Um, it's slightly difficult to present it visually. Um, there's a big table that kind of generates these numbers, um, but to present it visually is difficult. Um, so what I do is I look at uh, Minnesota and its neighboring states, and you can track the lines on a chart over time. Um, you know, time on your kind of x-axis and see how the stringencies relate to each other, how they change over time. Um, and you can see that, you know, they all, they follow the same kind of pattern-ish in the sense that there's an initial tightening and things go off and then they drift on for a bit. Um, but you, you do see some differences in the stringencies, obviously, of course, with Minnesota's neighbours. So the peaks are different um, and the ongoing stringencies are, are different throughout the, the tail of that period. One of the things that that's good about your report, I have it up on my on, on one of my screens in my office here right now, and one, I'm looking at page 25 of that report in Figure 11, which looking is that stringency index. You would have got the impression, John, by the by the reporting that somehow the stringency in Minnesota was like a thousand, and it was zero in South Dakota. But the truth yeah. of the matter is it was a lot less than that. And I have to say, I paused on that graph and I'm like, okay, so who's this, who's this Blavatnik school and, and why are they accusing uh, uh, South Dakota of being like 50% stringent? Uh, you know, what, what does that mean? Uh, so, so maybe a little flesh on that a bit. Yeah, um, they don't just look at uh, state policy, uh, by the way. They look at kind of the levels of government below that, and I think that feeds into it. Um, so, I mean, for example, I, I went to Sioux Falls in South Dakota during the period uh, of, of, of all this. And, um, you know, there, there were masking requirements and there were kind of spacing requirements in some places. Um, so it's... You know, it's not necessarily true that the state government drove all of this. You actually see, and this is something I cut out of the report because um, it was kind of dragging on a bit, um, but I think it's on our website, something I wrote, is that if you look at the employment change in uh, restaurants um, in Minnesota and the Twin Cities and draw a line uh, over this period, you do actually see that the lines track each other basically, you know, perfectly until the back end of 2020, when they diverge um, fairly significantly. Um, and that, I think, is, is a factor, is a result of the fact that the cities, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, imposed uh, these extra requirements when there was some COVID surge, 
which won't be imposed elsewhere um, in the yeah. state by local authorities. So, you know, you, you can, I mean, it, it's very easy at the, re- in, in, in the reporting at the time to look at what the governor is doing, but there's a lot that goes on below that. And also, of course, a lot of it just gets kind of clouded by partisan mudslinging. Um, I mean, all the people who, you know, think that the shutdowns were the you know, function of one party. I mean, it was it was a Republican president that signed on to it originally. So um, there was there was a touch more bipartisan support for some of this than people like to think in retrospect. Now, John, you've probably read a lot more of this literature than I have. I'm going to I'm going to bet you have. And so I'm, you know, this this uh, it, stringency index, I'm sure didn't get initially created for the purpose of doing what you did. And it's one of the wonderful things about doing economics is you'll p- find a piece of data that gets used in one place, and you say, I wonder what it would look like if I used that data to answer a question over here that the person that created the data didn't plan on. My guess, John, is the stringency index was created at Oxford for the purpose of trying to demonstrate that stringency actually did save lives. What's the data say about that? Well, um, I pondered this uh, long and hard um, about whether I included some exploration of the uh, the health benefits of this, but I think if you if you're if you're coming out with one kind of finding, you know, do a report on that. And if you want to do anything else, do it in a separate one. Because, I mean, I'm going to get attacked on this um, just for what I, what's in the report, let alone for what I could have put in it as well. Um, and so I think with the, 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 the thing that sometimes is the, the question of did these things work, did these stringent measures work, um, there is literature on this. Um, there is actually a very good uh, kind of meta-analysis. I think I refer to it in the report as the final footnote um, from Johns Hopkins, where they said that all these lockdowns and shutdowns, you know, once you... Uh, do the research and look at the numbers, um, they didn't actually have much of an impact. And that kind of actually makes, I, I think, an intuitive sense. Um, you know, uh, if, if you, you've got this respiratory disease, um, which you do have to be kind of in close contact with people to catch, um, you're not going to get it just walking down the street necessarily. Um, and so I see people wearing masks in the street and it's like, well, you know, that's that's not necessarily all that helpful. I mean, if you want to do it, fine. Um, I, I, I was very loath to answer the question of whether they worked in a medical sense. Um, I think other people have done that, like I said, refer anyone to the Johns Hopkins study. And what I wanted to do with this is not to say that lockdowns were good or lockdowns were bad, but to kind of open a conversation that wasn't had at the time, which is where you can start to weigh costs and benefits. Because at the time, if you remember, any discussion of, well, hang on, is this a good idea or not? You were accused of wanting to murder all these various people. Um, and it was almost impossible to have a sensible conversation um, about the potential costs of these things, um, which is not the good way to make public policy. It's a very bad way to make public policy. And I would say, just to refer back to our previous discussion about the British economy, um, one of the reasons that the British economy is in the mess it's in, and other economies as well, is because they shut down their economies and constrict their ability to produce goods and services at the same time as they dumped in trillions and trillions and trillions of pounds or dollars or euros of new money. Um, and so the obvious result has been inflation. And so all the situation that we've got worldwide now, with these interest rates going up and inflation and 
yields and all the stuff we were talking about, um, likely high inflation and recession. Um, this is all a result. This is all a cost of those shutdowns. And so we should, we should start talking about that. We should have been talking about that earlier. But I think the conversation has never allowed to take place. Yeah, I, I agree with that last point very much, that, that there's a needed conversation here. Uh, and and I, I, I ask you some of these questions, John, as a as sort of trying to push push a little bit so that people who may not be inclined to th- look at that seventy five hundred dollars for a family of four number and 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 say, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, but even yeah. if that number's right. Right. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about how you get at that number w- without getting too nerdy on our audience. But I also want to I also going to ask you a question that uh, we exchanged emails while you were in the process of writing this. And I, I'm going to uh, I'm going to push put that question uh, on to you uh, publicly uh, about uh, about, you know, well, let's think about that trade off. And that's why I asked you the question before. But we need to we need yeah. to. Uh, Take a break here for a moment, John. I'll be back with you in just a minute. We're talking with John Phelan from the Southern American Experiment. His paper, The Cost of Lockdowns and Shutdowns, at uh, AmericanExperiment.org. Uh, go read it. Uh, it's not long. It's got lots of charts, so you can, you can go buy that. It's not a lot of words. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to The King Banyan Show on The Biz, 1440. Attention taxpayers. If you owe the IRS back taxes or have years of unfiled tax returns, the IRS has greenlighted billions of dollars in tax relief to those facing financial hardship through its tax relief initiative. If you have a delinquent tax problem and possibly facing wage garnishment, liens, levies, audits, or already in a payment plan, you may now qualify for significant relief. Qualifying and enrolling in this program will stop all collections, settle your tax problem, and may even reduce what you owe by up to 99%. Call the hotline at Defense Tax Partners to see if you qualify and receive your free tax assessment by dialing 800-533-4877. If you or your business owe $10,000 or more in back taxes to the IRS or state, you can now qualify to get the help that you need. Call now to see what you qualify for by dialing 800-533-4877. 800-533-4877. That's 800-533-4877. We say thank you for your support of the Here to Help campaign. This past week, we raised over $27,000 to support the life-changing programs offered by the Salvation Army. Your donation is already at work right here in the Twin Cities, providing rent assistance, supportive housing programs, and more. Because of your generosity, families in the Twin Cities won't have to choose between paying rent or putting food on the table. They're getting the hand up they need to regain stability. Thanks again to Geritom Medical, and most of all, thank you. If you were lied to and buying a timeshare and worn out, you need my help. Hi, I'm Chuck McDowell, CEO and founder of Wesley Financial Group. Ten years ago, I started the timeshare cancellation industry by exposing the ugly truth about timeshare. 
and giving folks the straight facts. I've been fighting the timeshare giants ever since, so no one knows this industry better than me and my team. Today, we have 383 employees and have saved our clients an average of $65,000 in lifetime payments. Imagine putting those timeshare dollars back in your pocket. If you were told in a timeshare presentation that this was available today and today only, that timeshare was a great investment, or your maintenance fees will never go up, call my office now. I guarantee if we take you as a client, we will cancel your timeshare or you'll pay nothing. Call now for your free information kit. 800-687-7979. 800-687-7979. What does it mean to be a Christian woman in our current culture? How does your faith in Christ relate to the world around you? At times, being a Christian can seem like an overwhelming task in today's busy and challenging landscape. That's why you should visit iBelieve.com, a site designed for Christian women. Whether you're looking for insight, conversation starters for your church group, or just an uplifting message, you'll find it at iBelieve.com. Visit iBelieve.com, a division of Salem Media Group. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. Thank you for listening today. We're visiting this hour with John Phelan from the Center of American Experiment. AmericanExperiment.org is their website. His latest report, I've got a, the cost of lockdowns and shutdowns, part one. I'm looking forward to part two, John, uh, which I, I don't know that you're involved with directly, but it's look at the impact on Minnesota students, which is clearly a... Uh, a topic of great concern for many parents around uh, the state, and I, I think will be as impactful as uh, the report that you've created. Um, but uh, just to go back to, to this point, so let's talk a little bit about how you arrive at a number of, of and we're rounding $7,500 for a family of four. And you said it only goes to the first quarter of 2021 because that's all the data you had to work with for now. So, so let's set, so, so people are like, well, what about later? It's like, well, we'll have to wait for the data to show up before we can know the answer to that. Um, if there is desire for that, but let's talk about how it is that you tried to get a grip on that $7,500 number. Yeah. Well, um, firstly, you, uh, take, um, the kind of observed, uh, changes in something like GDP per capita. Um, or, yeah, and that's kind of our outcome variable. Um, so we've got what we actually had, and you just download that from the Bureau of Economic Analysis or somebody. Um, and then you go into what's uh, called, you know, kind of econometrics, which is uh, really it's the kind of application of statistical methods to economic questions, I suppose, is maybe the textbook definition of it. Um, and so what you do then is you start to collect um, other variables, kind of explanatory variables, um, which could, you could say, explain the observed changes uh, in your outcome variable. Um, so, you know, real GDP or something. And so I sat down and I thought, well, obviously, you know, we've got uh, stringency is the one. And the stringency index is what made all this possible. Without that, it's just not doable. Um, so the stringency index is the first one. That's the key one. Um, that's what I was trying to 
kind of uh, isolate and the impact of that. Um, but you have to put other things as well, other things that could influence um, uh, the, uh, the, observed, the observed outcomes. Um, so you kind of build a model. Um, and so I, I, I thought, you know, well, what can vary from state to state um, that will be impactful? So I put taxes in there. We've got a measure of uh, tax uh, burdens um, from the tax foundation. Um, also, it seemed to me that states that have been um, particularly heavily hit were states with uh, a large share of their incomes uh, that were derived from like arts and leisure and entertainment, which obviously were particularly hard hit by these measures. Um, and so it seemed to me that if, if you were a state uh, like Hawaii, for example, and Nevada, which had a lot more of your GDP derived in that, then you were probably going to get an outsized hit. So the share of your economy derived from that was probably worth putting in. Um, so those are kind of the main ones. Um, they're the main other variables that we use. Um, and so then you, uh, you put all this into your, your econometric software, and it turns out these estimates of uh, the impact of these things on your uh, observed outcomes. And one of the things it produces is this estimate. So you, first off, you can find what's significant and what's not. And uh, we actually found um, that about the only thing that was significant out of our model variables uh, was, was the stringency. And that was the only one that had, you know, like a p-value that was appropriate. And I'm, I'm trying to not get too kind of technical with this. Um, so that was the only thing that you could say was, was significantly uh, affecting these things. And it gives you an estimate of to by how much um, each change in the uh, variable that you have, so stringency, uh, impacts the variable that you're trying to explain, which is the percentage change of real GDP. And so once you do that, then you can calculate the exact effect of the stringency measures and then you can kind of sub, uh, subtract that or add that, you know, to the uh, to the uh, measures that you have to figure out what GDP would have been, the, what the change in real GDP would have been in the absence of these measures. And so that's essentially how you arrive at this estimate of per capita um, GDP, because obviously then you take the GDP number, divide it by the population, aggregate per capita number, and then you can multiply that by four very roughly to get a household number. That sometimes helps people get more of a handle on it. Um, but that's the kind of short version. I, I, I hope that uh, kind of gets it yeah. about right. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think that's good. Uh, um, so one thought I had in this is, is that, that if I thought about the difference between, and that we're, we're, because we, li we live in Minnesota and we hear all this talk about North and South Dakota, um, and you've made a good point here today, I think, in that you're talking about the GDP, that stringency happened in the Dakotas in no small part because of local government policy rather than state policy. So if I take your information of that dollar amount, that 7500 per, or, or maybe I should do it uh, on a per capita basis because it'll be easier, um, What's that difference between, say, what Minnesota cost and, say, a South Dakota? Uh, well, in South Dakota, I think the loss is like twelve hundred dollars. Um, right. In North Dakota, sixteen hundred dollars. Um, so, in, you can say actually that the difference between, say, uh, Minnesota and North Dakota is like two hundred dollars per person, which is not as much as you might think. 
Um, if you're talking about South Dakota, it's $600 per person. Uh, you know, if you times that by four to get the house on number $2,400, um, is that a lot? Um, I think uh, it's, it's funny. I, I talk to some people, they say, oh, that's not a lot of money. I talk to other people, they say, wow, that's a lot of money over a year. And you have to bear in mind yeah. that this is the uh, yeah, over a year. So, I mean, I, that has to be borne in mind as well. It's not, you know, an ongoing thing. It's just the, the cost in the first year. Right. And that's that. And it is a, you know, and that's one of the things I like about this report. It's very modest isn't the right word, I, 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 I think. I think it's a it's respectful of what the data tells you and allowing and allowing the data to tell you that. But then being very clear about what the data doesn't capture. And yeah. I think that's an important part of the work you've done here, John, is that you and Martha have done is that you have made sure to not overstate what this really says but it basically says that if we had lived in in south dakota which everyone kind of holds up as a you know and i'm holds up as being you know a uh, a model uh place you know that's six hundred dollars we go down to florida it's really insignificantly different from from south dakota in terms of the numbers you're providing here so it's about 600 bucks a person and you know, I think to myself, if that was true and you had known that in advance, would you have, why didn't more people simply get up and go? I mean, we know that Florida has gotten this huge influx of in-migration from other states. And many of the places that are, that in-migrated were the states that have larger bar, red bars here on your chart of per capita GDP loss from anti-COVID measures, uh, the uh, the but like the Californias, the New Yorks, the Connecticut's, the Massachusetts's, um, you know. Uh, but did we have a lot of out migration in Minnesota? You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of wondering because I haven't seen that data yet. Uh, yes, we did actually. Um, I, I we we always have losses of population, as you know, um, and I there is actually. I think from the Census Bureau, <clears throat> I ran up on a website, uh, the Twin Cities lost people, the state lost people. Um, you know, so, so we did have um, a, a, a bad impact on it. I can't remember the exact number. Um, I want to say it's about $13,000, but um, I would need to check before uh, you quote me on that. But it will be an interesting thing, I think. Um, and it's something I considered doing in the report, but, you know, I, 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 tried, to set, I tried to answer one question at a time. Um, and it would be interesting to take, I think, these numbers um, and then run them against, you know, net domestic migration numbers um, and see. And I, I, I guess um, so South Dakota, I think, gained residents over the over the period of the pandemic. I, I, need, I need to check to be 100 um, percent. But, yeah, you know, so you, you're quite right. Um, there does seem to be uh, this uh, kind of link. Although it's kind of interesting that Texas is still up there with, uh, you know, $1,700 loss. But you have to remember that a lot of Texas is, I mean, I, I don't like to use the red and blue terminology, but Texas isn't that red. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a state that could flip, I suppose. Um, and so at the, at the lower level, particularly at the city level, um, there wasn't. There were significant restrictions, you know, in places like Austin or Dallas or somewhere, which is a large right. part of Texas. Yeah, and I think John, in particular, if you, if you look at a place like uh, Houston, 
Uh, that's yeah. a very that's a very Democrat controlled city that represents a significant proportion of the population. I'm not sure how uh, Blavatnik does does you know do they do it by population? Do they do it by counties or or what have you? But my guess is my guess is that number that restriction number is probably a whole lot more to do with this with the uh, municipal governments than it is by state government. Um, yeah. And, and, and in contrast to that, you have you have you know again not to be too political about it, but you had a you had over this time a Republican gov, uh, mayor in in uh, Miami, so you're likely to get much less stringency in Florida because their major cities are not uh, Democrat controlled like the major cities of Texas. Um, yeah, I, I just yeah, I just so, pulled up I just pulled up the numbers by the way. Um, in, in, in 2021, Minnesota lost 13,453 residents to other states, uh, which was the biggest net loss of domestic migrants in 30 years. And the Twin Cities lost 15,000 residents to other parts of America in the same period. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, that, that's, worth, that's worth noting. Hey, John, stick with us. Uh, I got a question about another study that the American, Center of the American Experience is doing. I'll ask you briefly to make a comment about that, and uh, and uh, we'll wrap this up. Uh, we're visiting with John Phelan from the Center of the American Experiment. Uh, we encourage you to read his report at AmericanExperiment.org. Uh, we'll be back right after this with our final segment of the King Banging Show on The Biz, 1440. The Biz 1440, KYCR, Golden Valley. Dr. Gorka here, and you know me. I am very cynical about products, especially those that claim to help people suffering from pain. So when I tell you that Relief Factor truly works, I want you to know that I mean it. I suffered from a stiff lower back for almost a decade, one so painful it made it difficult to kneel in church on Sundays. When I finally decided to give Relief Factor a try, I didn't ever imagine that I would find myself free of the pain. But that's what happened. Now, I take Relief Factor every day. Almost 70% of the more than half a million people who have tried Relief Factor end up ordering more. That's because it works for them the way it worked for me. Isn't it time for you to get out of pain? Your first step to becoming pain-free should be to order the three-week quick start for the discounted price of only $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF to find out more about this offer. Feel the difference. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in Minnesota. This message presented by the Minnesota State High School League and the Minnesota Interscholastic Activities Administrators Association. Turn market volatility into opportunity today by investing with the big institutions, not against them. Many people are getting taken advantage of by Wall Street. Learn why their returns are so much better than the average novice 401k investor. Learn the skills to be a better steward of your own money. Call for a free in-center or virtual investing class today at 952-814-4410. Call Online Trading Academy at 952-814-4410 or go to learnwithota.com. 
612 The Bird. Now you can say, I got a guy, when you have an electrical problem or a home project. Early Bird Electric is the troubleshooting expert, and they love old homes. For home rewires, remodeling projects, and emergency service, you can trust Early Bird because of their unmatched service guarantees. And yes, Early Bird offers same day service and 24 7 emergency service. 612 The Bird. Mention AM 1280 The Patriot, and your trip charge is free with repair purchase. 612 The Bird. Or visit 612TheBird.com. Looking for an affordable, thoroughly biblical Christian school for your K-8 through grader? Check out Foundations Christian Academy in Ham Lake, the newest member of our half-off tuition program. Find all the details at learnatfoundations.org. That's learnatfoundations.org. Sightseeing in Ferris, at the Mall in Bloomington, or on horseback in Dallas. We're where you are. Listen to the Biz 1440 at odyssey.com or with the free Odyssey app. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, the Biz 1440. Last segment, just a few minutes left with uh, John Phelan from the Center of the American Experiment, author of The Cost of Lockdowns and Shutdowns, Part 1. Looking forward to Part 2 when when they talk about the impact on uh, learning for Minnesota students. Um, I'm looking forward to that. John, are you taking part in writing that too, or is that someone else at uh, the center? I'm not. No, that's my colleague, Katrin Thorman. That's ready to go, I think, um, almost any day. So uh, I will keep you posted on that. All right. I will I will get that report out as well to our, our members, uh, to our listeners uh, when we can. Uh, just having a great time visiting with you. I would also note uh, uh, that uh, you've, you know, the center's had some success lately uh, talking about uh, talking about the uh, feeding our futures uh, issue and uh your colleague Bill Glan, uh, I'm happy to know Bill, and uh, and uh, he's been doing a lot of good reporting on that lately. Um, is do we count that as a cost of the shutdown? I mean, is, is that is that something we should think about too? Uh, the cost of COVID. I mean, so again, go back to the British context. There's a whole scandal occasion over there about PPE contracts where they awarded to Boris Johnson's friends or conservative donors or something. Um, and a point that people often make is that if, if you were um, the, the point was to get these things quickly. So to the extent that, you know, existing relationships were utilized, that was a way of facilitating a, a speedy transaction. Um, and if you're not concerned about spending the money honestly, so much as spending the money quickly, then obviously oversight is your enemy. And I think there's an element of that with the Feeding Air Future thing here. I, I, I'm not the expert on this at Bill Glarnes, um, and he really has, he, he's really the reason that the Minnesota media is covering this now. They, they really do wish it would go away um, for the most part. Um, but uh, I think it's a situation where if you're just trying to shovel money out the door as quickly as possible, then you don't worry about um, about all this. So there's, a, there's a new book out actually called Trillion Dollar Triage by uh, Nick Timaros. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which yeah. is kind of the more macro level um, of the response to the pandemic. But he does make the point that whenever questions were raised about, well, how are we going to make sure this money gets spent properly, the pushback was always, we'll worry about that later. That was always the issue. So, yeah, I think to some extent this is a cost of the pandemic. 
Yeah, and I think and I agree with that. Um, there was a phrase that uh, Arthur Oaken back in the '60s used to use. I don't think I don't know if you learned it in school. Uh, I learned it as the leaky bucket uh, yeah. uh, hypothesis that uh, that when you're trying to shovel a lot of money out quickly out the door, that uh, you just sort of accept the fact that some of the some of the liquidity is going to leak out, and that you just you just sort of say, "Well, we had to get the money out, so we, you just deal with it." And having been in government myself, uh, still on a couple of uh, uh, governmental agencies, uh, on boards for governmental agencies. The leaky bucket shows up more often than I think we know. <laughs> at, at, at the end of the day, they, yeah, where where you've got the you've got the executive director of an agency basically shrugging their shoulders at you, saying, "Well, what what else do you think we're going to be able to do? We got to do this, yeah. right?" Uh, uh, so so I think that's really that's that's really important, uh, John. Um, Last question, what are you working on next now that this report is out? Uh, well, I've got a couple of things I've got um, for our magazine coming up. Um, one is uh, an article on the 50th anniversary of the famous Time magazine cover story, Minnesota, the state that works. Uh, I'm revisiting that to see what people would say about it now. Uh, and in terms of my next research project, I'm going to utilize a set, um, a data series on um, social capital at the county level um, to see how that ties into differences in per capita personal incomes at the county level and see what you know, the relationships are there. So social capital. Oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness! Okay, we're gonna have to we have to have you back for that. That's an issue of personal interest for me as a someone who's in the economic development space here in, in central Minnesota and who thinks somehow that we have a ton of social capital up here that that should be the envy of the rest of the state. <laughs> so I I can't wait to I can't wait to I can't wait to read this, John. It's, it's just fantastic. John Phelan from the Center of the American Experiment. Again, one last time, AmericanExperiment.org, the costs of lockdowns and shutdowns. If you're a listener to this show, you can get through this paper. Yes, there are charts. Yes, there are graphs. There's even an equation, but you'll be fine. You'll get through it. Uh, thank, you, thank you so much, John, for your time today. Uh, appreciate you being here. And uh, thank you, Daniel, for the production work there as well. We'll be back next week with uh, Job Saturday here on the King Banyan Show on The Biz 1440. See you then. I'm sure glad you're my sister, Addie. Yep, you're my best buddy. Mom says you were their little surprise. What would we do without you? Well, you'll probably get your own gum. Yeah, that's true, but you're worth it. Hello, my name is Carrie. I work with Pro-Life Across America, the billboard people. If you know someone who is pregnant or in need of alternatives to abortion or needs post-abortion assistance or would like to support the life-saving work of Pro-Life Across America, please call 1-800-366-7773 or check us out online at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Pro-Life Across America, educational, non-political, and tax-deductible. A baby's heart is beating 18 days from conception. Pro-Life Across America. 
I'm Staff Sergeant Mark Anthony Madrid. Staff Sergeant Samantha Cowell. I'm Staff Sergeant Alex. I'm Staff Sergeant William Lewis, and I am proud to defend my family and our nation. The Air Force Reserve is part of the story of this great nation. I'm grateful that I have a chance to wear the uniform of the heroes that went before me. I am proud to be part of a team that helps make a difference in the world. Every day, men and women from communities across this nation serve as reserve citizen airmen. Even as technology evolves and changes, our commitment to defend and protect this nation remains steadfast. We celebrate those who have served and those who are proudly serving. We celebrate our proud history and look towards an exciting and uniting future. Our mission is to fly, fight, and win in air, space, and cyberspace. And I am proud to be a member and of And I'm proud to serve in the United and States. And I am Air proud to protect our country. Proud to serve in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. AFreserve.com. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation. For us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. The Biz 1440, K1. Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds, like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on local now, channel 525.